Back in chapter 5, Jesus had told his disciples that their righteousness needed to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now that was a tall order that Jesus was proclaiming to his disciples because they looked upon Pharisees and scribes as something of a very religious group, a very unique and easily identifiable group of very, very faithful men of God. And when Jesus spoke of being better than they in our righteousness, well, their assumption was that the Pharisees and scribes are the most righteous of all the Jews, and how could their righteousness, which they knew because most of them were just common folk, fishermen, many of them, tradesmen, people of very little stature in society, how could they ever be possibly better than the Pharisees with regard to their righteousness? They all knew the scripture in the Old Testament. Isaiah had said, our righteousness as are as filthy rags. That was their assessment of their own righteousness. And Jesus had said, your righteousness must exceed, must. That's an emphatic, it has to. There's no other choice in the matter. Your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees and the scribes' righteousness in order to enter into the kingdom. That was indeed a ground-shaking statement that he made. But that's not the only one he made. He also said they had to be perfect in verse 48 of that same chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. They had to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That was also something that they had to really wonder about as he spoke those words. How could this be? What is he expecting of us? He's asking the impossible. Later on, Jesus will admit, yes, it is impossible. He'll say, with men, it is not possible, but with God, all things are possible. So he was telling them, yeah, you're right. Your righteousness is indeed as filthy rags. You cannot exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, and even their righteousness was not good enough to enter into the kingdom, and you actually had to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect if you are to be considered to be one of God's chosen among those who would enter in. That is the exclusiveness of the society of believers that will enter into the kingdom. No other individuals will be allowed. Jesus had gone on to say in chapter 7 that this issue is straightforward. There's only two things, two ways, two possibilities, two choices. You either are or you aren't one of these. And you either do or you don't do one of these. He said there is a gate that leads to unrighteousness. It leads to a road that is wide. It's a road that is easy. Jesus said, that leads to destruction. But there's another gate. And that gate is narrow. And the way is difficult. But that way leads to eternal life. Jesus said, there are two gates. The wide gate and the narrow gate. There are two ways. The easy way and the difficult way. He talked about there is fruit that we can look upon as believers in Christ to see whether or not individuals are actually in the faith. He had told them in the beginning of chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. He's not talking about that kind of judgment here, a critical judgment, a judgment that is necessary, but it's only something that God himself will perform. That judgment will come by Jesus, by the Lord, at the judgment seat of Christ and at the great white throne judgment. We'll be looking at that momentarily as we continue on in our study. But he also says that you are to be fruit inspectors, which is in a sense judging people's actions, judging people's words. And he says there are some who will come as wolves in sheep's clothing and they will be bearing the wrong kind of fruit. So there is good fruit and there is bad fruit. You see all the various contrasts that Jesus is declaring in the Sermon of the Mount that must have been each one of them striking their hearts, perhaps with a bit of fear and trepidation. 
And that's good because that brings everyone to this place that needs to be brought before God. You need to understand the choice that you make is with regard to your eternal soul. And it's a matter of choosing one or the other. There's no gray area as far as God is concerned. You can't say, well, I, 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 I know that He said that this is necessary, but nobody can actually do that. So He's surely going to be willing to accept my good works. He's surely going to accept my willingness to speak about Him and talk to others about Him. He's going to accept my willingness to come to church and, and tithe and, and do all of the various things that people do in the churches for the purpose of proving yourself before others. Jesus had talked about that too. He said, don't let the things that you do, the almsgiving, don't let your fasting be seen of men. Do everything for God's glory and not to puff yourself up because that is not, not at all what God intends for you and I. And it won't work with regard to your salvation. So all of these things Jesus has been bringing to their attention. He's been sharing with His disciples, convincing them that everything that they had learned was not in and of itself bad, it at least taught them about God's expectation through the law of how to come before God as a righteous Jew. But it was lacking because no Jew was righteous. So they had a dilemma. God has given us all of these laws, all of these commandments, all of these precepts and traditions that we have as a people serving the one true God and they found themselves to be the children of God in that respect because God had chosen this people, the Hebrew nation, the Jews, to serve Him and to teach the world about Himself. They did not at all understand all that the law did was show them, prove to them, that they needed to have some other means by which they could come to a holy God because surely they could not keep all of the commandments of God. And so they were faced with a dilemma. And now Jesus has come along and He's completely destroyed all of what they had learned with regard to what the Old Testament had taught them in respect to how to approach your God. That's why we saw in chapter 6, Jesus' emphasis on just two of the commandments. Matthew may have only recorded two, but it seems to me that Jesus probably spoke of more than just two. But this abbreviated message that he has included for us in this gospel account strikes everyone where it hurts most. And I say that basically because those two commandments that he speaks of are two commandments that most of us wouldn't even consider the options that we have before us that Jesus has put on the table for us are far different than what they had understood with regard to those two laws. Because he said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, now here's the catch. Jesus says, all of the traditions of the rabbis before us from the time of Moses until this present hour that Jesus is speaking, everyone had some opinion that was based on somebody else who had spoken before them. The rabbis always referred to a previous reference of a rabbi or teaching that had been given before. And they would say, this is what the law says based on Rabbi Gamaliel. Or this is what the law says based on Rabbi Hallel. What Jesus says, but I say, listen to the authority of Jesus as he speaks these words. You have heard it has been said, thou shalt not murder, but I say. Jesus was saying, look, I have the authority to speak on this matter and it is much more appropriate for you to listen to my words. I'm not contradicting what the Word of God says, but I'm telling you that the traditions of men that have gone on before us don't quite get the full picture. 
So his statement, you have heard it said that thou shalt not murder, was based on the word of God. But I say unto you, if you have thought about it in your heart, then you've already done it. Though you haven't actually committed the deed, your heart has proven that you were a sinner. And just thinking about it, just considering it, is just as if you had done the act. And then he went on to adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, everybody here, I'm sure, agrees with that statement. It's right that Jesus would talk about such things. It's right that the Word of God would condemn such things. As a matter of fact, the punishment of adultery or murder was punishment of capital punishment, death, by stoning. God did not allow any of them to do such things without proper punishment. But Jesus said, but that's what you've heard said. Now I say unto you again, he's saying, I'm going to expand on what you have already heard from the rabbis, from the traditions of men. The word of God is still intact. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. But I say, in this case of adultery, if you look upon a woman, of course he's speaking to men, but it applies to women and men. If you look upon a man, a woman, and you have this thought in your heart, then you've already committed. Jesus has taken the basic law and expanded it beyond anybody's ability to say without Lying, which is another command that God says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. None of us are without guilt. We all are blameless. Every single one of us. And that's why it's so surprising when Jesus, after having said that, says to all of his disciples, You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oi they, how is that possible? They would say. Well, God says it's necessary. And because it is necessary, it is possible with only one catch. His power. His provision. His presence in your life. There's no other way. You cannot do it in your own strength. Oh, we say that so often here, I'm sure you're tired of hearing it. But listen, it needs to be said again and again and again. You cannot enter into God's presence based upon your own ability, based upon your own intellect, based upon your standing in the culture in which you live. There is nothing that you can do in and of yourself that will bring you into a place of perfection that is acquired by the Lord God in order to enter into His presence. You've got to remember this. Think about it. These are truths that Jesus has said in this sermon. And now we get to the last part of the sermon that he's preaching to his disciples and now to a great multitude that have gathered together in verse 21. Turn there with me. Matthew 7:21. And when you pray, that's chapter 6, 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You see why I'm emphasizing this need for perfection? The will of God is you need to be perfect. And this is what Jesus is saying in order to enter into his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, Not only does your righteousness have to be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, not only do you have to be perfect for your Father in heaven is perfect, you have to understand that it's the will of His Father that needs to be done by every single one of us. Well, what is His will? Jesus said, when He was asked the question, what must I do? to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What must I do? And Jesus said, this is what you must do. Believe in Him whom the Father has sent. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Believe in Jesus and all of what is required of you will be made possible to you. But what does it mean when we say believe in Him? 
What does it take for true belief to be manifest in ourselves? Well, Jesus speaks on those matters. So does the rest of God's word to us, especially in the New Testament, but also in the Old. But before we get there, let's continue reading what Jesus has to say to his disciples here. Verse 22 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Listen, in the previous verses that we looked at last week, Jesus was condemning false prophets who would come as wolves in sheep's clothing to lead people astray, to misguide individuals and keep them from coming into faith. Here he's talking about not leaders, but people. Those who think they're in because they have done good things. Have we not done all of these wonderful things in your name? Well, you would think that that would carry some merit, don't you? Isn't it wonderful that God allows us to serve Him? It's wonderful that I have this privilege of preaching the Word of God and I proclaim His Word. And one of the Psalms, my favorite Psalm, in regard to this ministry that God has called me to, is found in Psalm 71 where the psalmist says, Now that I am old and gray-haired, and if you look at me, that fits my description pretty well. Now that I am old and gray-haired, allow me, O Lord, to proclaim your strength to all who will come, to proclaim your power to this generation. That's what I pray. I want that to be the case with me. But it has nothing to do with my ability. It has nothing to do with my oratory skill, it has to do with the fact that He has called me for that purpose, and I'm so grateful for that. But I cannot take credit for that. That's probably a good thing, because if I did, I'd probably be embarrassed about the fact that I'm doing a good job, aren't I, huh? Pat myself on the back. I'm doing a great job. Well, there goes my reward. So I don't want that. But I want God to be glorified. These people that he's talking about are average, everyday people that have been surprised by the fact that they can't get in. Why? Because they weren't believing in Jesus. Oh, they knew about Jesus. And they were actually doing marvelous things in his name. You think that's not possible? Think again. There's only one person you have to consider when you think about what they are saying here, we did all kinds of wonderful things. We proclaimed your word. We healed the sick. We delivered many from demonic oppression. Certainly that amounts to something. Did it amount to anything for Judas Iscariot? He did all of those things. But in the end, he proved himself to be unfaithful to God in that he did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the one who would be the Savior of the world. And these are men and women who are in exactly the same place. They think they're doing all kinds of wonderful things on behalf or in behalf of Jesus in his name, but there's no connection with their heart to who Jesus is, to what Jesus has done. They think they're going to get in because of the good deeds that they did instead of by faith in Christ alone. Many, he says, will say in that day, what day? The day of judgment. The day when people will be all of them, everyone, standing before the Lord. There are two judgments actually. One is the Bema seat of Christ, which is a separate judgment of believers, and another place of judgment in the Scriptures that is known as the great white throne of judgment, which happens a thousand and seven years later, by my calculation. The different judgments. That second judgment, the great white throne judgment, is for unbelievers. The Bema seat of Christ is for believers. You are either there or you are there. Again, there's two possibilities, two choices. God loves to deal with simple black and white. You're here or you're there. I want to be here. And so do I want that for everyone. That's why I proclaim His gospel. That's why I proclaim His truth. That's why I'm so convinced that it is necessary to be filled with God's Spirit so that we can be faithful witnesses to Him and for His glory in these last days. Because there are a lot of people who are going there. 
And I don't want anyone I know going there. I want people to join me here. And that should be the case for every one of us. I hope it is. Jesus said, Many, though, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, calling Him Kurios, the Greek word for Lord. Now, it could in that sense just simply mean Sir or Master. And I believe that's probably the case with these individuals that He's condemning here. They didn't really recognize Him as the Lord. And they didn't think of themselves as His servants in that sense. But that's what we are. Servants. And no servant ever would say to his master, no, I'm not doing that. And get away with it. The Lord lords over His servants. And He tells His servants what they should or should not do. And His servants need to listen carefully for the command of their Lord and do His will, not their own. But Jesus says, look, I am your Lord. I am your Master. But I want you to understand that everything I command you is based upon my love for you. And it makes all the world of difference to me because I don't want a Lord that's going to master over me, lord it over me, so that it will cause me to wonder, am I really following the right person or the right deity? Well, yes, we are when we're following Jesus Christ. When we know who He is and what He has done for us and what He is doing for us now in this present age. Many will say, though, to me in that day, in that day of judgment, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? And this is God's answer to these things. He says very, very clearly in verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Let that sink in. What Jesus is saying to those who think they're in, you didn't even come close. I never knew you, Jesus says. What a terrible thing to hear. Instead of well done, good and faithful servant, for anyone to come into his presence and to hear the words, I never knew you. Oh my God! What a terrible thing to have to hear. And it will be the last words that you will hear from His lips if you are in that place. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. His assessment of their good deeds, it meant nothing because it wasn't based on their love for Him. But rather, it was based upon what they have accomplished on His behalf even. But it had nothing to do with Him. It was all about them. Finally, Jesus in this same section talks about the fact that there are two houses that can be built. In verse 24, He says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of Mine Everything that he's been telling them from the beginning of chapter 5 until this point in chapter 7, this Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, including the warnings about how to enter into the kingdom, all of these things, he says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. I love Psalm 61. It talked about, you have put me on a rock that is higher than I. What a wonderful psalm that is. When you think about it, he is talking of being sure-footed, making sure that you're on the foundation. It will not move from under your feet. It will not slide and slip and cause you to fall because it's a solid rock and it is an absolute place of security for the believer. For those who have put their trust in Jesus, that's where we stand, upon that solid rock. Paul tells us there is no other foundation laid that must be laid. That is Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is a solid rock. He is that sure foundation. He is the one upon whom we must be standing. And he talks about this in a sense of building a house. Whoever hears these sayings, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on that rock. On a foundation 
You always build from the foundation up. And if the foundation is sure, then you've got a good, solid place that you can reside in, you can trust in, you can be protected from the elements. And that's what he's going to be talking about here. He who is built on this rock, when the rain descends, the floods come, and the winds blow and beat on that house, it will not fall. That's what he's talking about, for it was founded on the rock. Solid foundation ensures the security of the believer. When you're building your faith upon Him as the rock that God has provided for all who would simply by faith receive these words, He has come to save you from constant, eternal, everlasting torment. He doesn't want anyone to go there. But people are going there. He says many are going down that road. Why? Because they will not believe in the simple truth of what Christ has done for all men, all women, everyone throughout the ages. No one is different. No one is excluded. God doesn't send people to hell. They choose to go there. But the rain will descend. The floods will come. The wind will blow. And none of that will harm you. Read Psalm 91 and another beautiful psalm where God, through the prophet, the psalmist says, none of these things will harm you. Nothing will be brought against you that He will not protect you from. He says elsewhere that you will go through the fire, but it will not burn you. You'll go through the waters, but you will not drown. He is going to protect you if you are built upon that solid rock. There is nothing that can come against you that will cause you to fail. You need to understand, that's where God has chosen to place everyone, but not everyone has chosen to move in that direction. And that's why he says in the next portion, in chapter 7, verse 26, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Notice that he says that person is a fool. The Bible tells us, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But the fool who builds his house on the sand, it's a lot easier. It's that easy road that we were talking about, that easy way, the wide gate leading to that easy way. I'm going to take the easy path. It isn't going to cost me as much. It isn't going to be so burdensome for me. It isn't so necessary for me to observe all the commands and the do's and the don'ts. So they think that it's appropriate to build on sand. Now in the Middle East, in the dry seasons, the sand hardens. It comes to be very compact and seems to be quite solid. And so building on the sand may look like, feel like, it's a great option. Why should I bother doing all that extra work to build down to the bedrock when the sand is good enough, it's solid, it's not going to be a problem for me. And so you build the house on the wrong foundation and what happens next? Well, by the time you're finished building and you're living in that beautiful home on the outside that looks just like the other one that's built on a foundation, a sure foundation, all of a sudden, the seasons change. The winds start to blow. The rains start to fall. And when the rain falls in that rainy season, in that territory, it is likely to see many places flash flooding. And that would result in the sand loosening, softening, and just moving from underneath that beautiful home. And all of a sudden, it crumbles, it falls, it breaks apart, it's destroyed. You have a choice. Build a good house on solid foundation. Build a beautiful home, nonetheless, on the sand. And it's not going to last. One is eternal. One is going to fail you. God help us to know what Jesus is saying. He's telling us the wise men choose to build on a solid foundation. 
and he will not be disappointed because his house that has been built will be safe from all of the troubles that may come. And in our life, we will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, Jesus said. Though you will have good uh, uh, tribulation, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Not so for the unbeliever. Not so for the one who thinks, I can do it my way. Not so for the one who thinks, well, yeah, Christianity is a nice religion. And Jesus was a good prophet. But after all, so was Mohammed. So was Buddha. So were all the others. So were any of those others, except for one thing. Jesus was more than a prophet. He was the Son of God. And very God. I'd like to take you through several scriptures to show this truth with clarity, I hope. As the Lord leads by the Spirit, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man... He, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Make it very clear in your mind what Paul here is saying to the Philippian church and to the church here at Searsport. Jesus is the only way. That narrow way that we talked about versus the wide way, that narrow way is His way. For He says, I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. I am the resurrection. I am the gate. I am the door. How many I am's do you need in order to understand that what Jesus is saying is, I am God, and there is no other? Romans chapter 14. The latter part of verse 10 in Romans 14 says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember I mentioned that just a short while ago. There is a judgment of believers and there is a judgment of unbelievers. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In this sense, he's not just talking about the one. He's talking about the judgment of Christ in both cases. He is the judge. Judgment has been appointed to the Son at both the judgment seat or bema seat of Christ for rewards to the church and the judgment of unbelievers for damnation to those who have rejected Him. He is the judge. And it says in verse 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to Me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now Jesus has been identified here as the judge, and it is said by Paul in this passage in Romans that he is the one before whom they will stand. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. It's referring to the judgment seat of Christ, and therefore it is referring to Jesus Christ when he says, they will stand before me. Turn now to the Old Testament Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45, beginning with verse 21, tells us, Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, no other God beside Jehovah, no other God beside me, and He is a just God and a Savior He's talking about Jehovah, the only God they know, the only God of creation, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God that is referred to in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament as their God, the God who is Elohim, the God who is known as Yahweh or Jehovah. He is the God of Israel, but He is the God of all creation. He's a just God and a Savior. 
There is none besides me. Jesus is not saying that he is God, is he? Take a look. It says in verse 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me, Jehovah, yes. Jesus, yes. God, oh yes. Before me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. That's what Jesus is being spoken of with regard to His deity in the book of Romans. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess to Jesus, to Jehovah. It is one and the same God. There is no question in my mind. I hope there is none in yours. We are serving the one true living God and He has manifest Himself to us as the Son of God and He has come to die for our sins. He has come because we needed a Savior. We could not do it in our own strength. We are not perfect as God is perfect. We are not holy as God is holy. We have not the righteousness that is necessary that would be able to enable us to enter into His presence. But He came and He died on the cross as our substitute so that we would not have to die, but we will live on forever in His presence if we have believed in this simple truth. The salvation that has been wrought by Jesus Christ on the cross, proven by His being raised from the dead, is a salvation that is the only salvation for all mankind. Either accept it, you're on this path or you're on that path. You went through this gate or you went through that gate. You are going to bear this kind of fruit or you are going to bear that kind of fruit. You are either a wolf in sheep's clothing or you are a sheep. And my sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice. Are you hearing his voice today? Are you willing to say yes to Jesus? Have you chosen him as your Savior, as your Lord? And making him to be your Lord means that you are going to do his will. Well, what's his will? I don't want to forget to talk about such things because it's so greatly important. Jesus said very clearly, this is my will, that you believe in me. Believe in Him whom the Father has sent. But He also said, My will is that you love one another as I have loved you. My will, He said, is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourselves. And in doing that, you have fulfilled all of the law and all of the prophets. You have chosen the solid rock to stand on instead of the sand which is going to let you sink in the mire, and you will lose everything if you stay there. Jesus is giving us options. He's giving us choices. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The risen Christ. Paul tells us wonderfully in this passage of Scripture about the fact that there is a gospel that needs to be spoken of. A gospel, that means good news. That is the message that God has given to all of mankind. The gospel account is clearly spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I do want to read the first several verses. It says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, if you have received, and if you do stand on these truths. There's no other way. There's no exception. You either are in or you are not. You are either on or you are off. You're either gray. No. No gray. You're either black or you're white. And I'm not talking about the skin color. I'm talking about your destiny. By which, verse 2, also that you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach, Paul speaking, to you. Unless, of course, you believed in vain. Now, there are lots of people who have said, Oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a wonderful prophet. Jesus did many miracles. Jesus really was a good teacher. That's not enough. That doesn't cut it. 
He was all of those things, yes, but he's more than that. And what Paul is saying is, you have to believe and don't believe in vain, thinking that your belief is adequate if you don't include the fact that he is indeed Lord of all. If he is indeed Savior of the world, then that is what you need to believe. And he is all of those. And verse 3 says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul is saying, I had to go through the same process of coming to this conclusion myself. I was once a Pharisee of the Pharisees, but Paul said, I was not saved until I came to this realization. I received these words that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Always pointed to this truth in the Old Testament sacrifices. They were examples. They were types of Christ dying for us as the perfect Lamb of God. That's the one thing Paul says. Christ died for our sins. You need to accept that as truth according to the Scriptures. And then, verse 4, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. If those things did not take place, then we are of all men most to be pitied, Paul tells us. The resurrection is proof that what God has done through Jesus Christ was indeed all-sufficient. The word that is used in many translations, efficacious. It means complete, absolutely finished, beyond doubt. That's why Jesus was able to say on the cross, Tetelestai, the Aramaic word for it, is finished. He raised from the dead to prove that finished work on the cross for all mankind, not just for a select few. Don't be confused by those who say, well, only the elect will be saved and nobody else is worth talking to. That's not right. That's absolute falsehood. Be talking to others because you don't know whether they will receive it. God knows, but it's not God's will that any should perish. God says, whosoever will. There's room at the cross for all. Don't exclude anyone. Don't write anybody off, but warn those who are not there yet with the truth of God's Word. A couple more places. This time I'm going to the chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Peter and John had gone into Jerusalem into the temple area and they saw a man who was begging. And Peter stood before him and said, Silver and gold I have none, but what I give to you, what I have rather, I give to you. Rise up in the name of Jesus and walk. And that beggar who was lame stood up, leapt, praised the Lord excitedly, talking about the miracle that had just taken place in his life. Peter and John were then arrested. And they were brought before the Sanhedrin. And they proclaimed their case before them. And he says in verse 9, If this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Bold statement of a man who had been fearful just a few days before of his very life. Now filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaiming the good news, the gospel. And he says in verse 11, This is the stone, referring to Jesus Christ, This is the stone, the rock, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Elsewhere he says he is a sure foundation. There's no question that he's referring to the fact that Jesus alone is that upon which the church must be and has been built. He goes on to say in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, that's the case that is set before us by the apostles, Peter and by Paul. Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead. Peter says he is a sure foundation. He is a solid rock. He is the one by whom all men must be saved. What does Jesus himself say about himself? John chapter 3. And we'll stop there 
in the reading of a few portions of chapter 3 in John's Gospel, where it says in verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. He's speaking to Nicodemus, one of the chief Pharisees in the day, a great teacher. Jesus acknowledged that he was a teacher of Israel. But he didn't know this simple truth. You must be born again. Those aren't words that I've made up. Those are the words of Jesus. They came from his lips. So there has to be some degree of importance when he says, you must be born again. You know, I remember one time when I first became a believer, I had been involved with a young men's organization, and I was just as drunk as the rest of them most of the time, partying with them all the time, but then I got saved. And I moved from Lewiston to Brunswick, and I was happily learning of the ways of God because I had become a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. I had come to know His salvation and believed every word of His word that's recorded for us in this Bible that we hold in our hands. I had been filled with His Holy Spirit and I was sanctified and being sanctified, I was trusting in Him daily for all of His provision. And then these other young men that I used to hang with came for a visit. I let them in. We sat down in our living room and they started talking to me about the fact that, you know, we really want to start another organization chapter here in the city of Brunswick. Would you be available? Would you be willing? And I said, no. I said, I can't do that anymore. I'm different than I was. I don't party like I used to. I don't do the things that I used to do. I'm a changed man. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord. And one of them looked at me with scornful look and said, you mean to tell me you're one of those born-again Christians? And I said to him, that's the only kind of Christian I know. You must be born again. Everyone. Yeah, I'm one of those born-again Christians. Aren't you? Don't you want to be? You should be. You should desire it. If you're not, do it. Because it's so simple. All you need to do is say, I'm a sinner. I have not any way to enter into God's presence except by some other means that I cannot provide, but I know my God, according to this word, has told me there's a way. There is a way, and it is the only way. It is through salvation given by faith through Him. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand it. Nicodemus wondered, well, what do you mean you must be born again? Do I have to enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus said, no, you don't understand. You're a teacher of Israel, but you don't know what I'm saying. Listen carefully. Jesus answered him and said in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water through the natural birth and the Spirit through the spiritual birth, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's the second time he says that. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. Wait a minute. There must be something significant in what Jesus is saying here. He's emphasizing being born again. He's emphasizing being born of the Spirit. There's a connection that he is trying to make in Nicodemus' heart and to every heart ever since then that have read these words. Finally, in verse 21, Jesus still talking. It says, He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That answers the question. You must be born again, and if you are, you are in the light, and if you are in the light, then the deeds that you do will be observed by God as being faithful deeds that glorify Him. And you won't be among those who say, did we not prophesy in your name? You won't be among those who said, did we not cast out demons in your name? You won't be among those who say, did we not do marvelous things in your name? And hear the words, I never knew you. Instead, those of us who are born again, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have received Christ as our Lord and our Savior, will stand before Him in that day of judgment at the bema seat of Jesus for all believers, and we will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what I want to hear. That's what you should want to hear as well. If you're not ready to 
Accept the fact that that's available to you. All you have to do is understand this one thing. He died for you as well. And the path that He has chosen for all who believe is available to you. It's available to you. It's available to all of us by faith. Walk through the narrow gate. Oh, the way is difficult. Yes, it's filled with trials and tribulations. It's filled with uncertainty. And, 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 and it's not going to be pleasant most of the time. You'll be picked on by your neighbors, by your friends, by your family. You'll be mocked. You may be persecuted. You might be put to death. But Jesus reminds us. They may be able to kill our body, but we are to fear the one who not only can destroy the body, but also to destroy the soul. It's not His will that that should happen to anybody. But it will take place to those who are choosing to not believe in the promises of our God. Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, made it so very clear. I hope you understand. I hope that you get it. It must be understood. It must be received. It must be believed. There is no other way to enter into God's presence and spend eternity in His presence. The option, the alternative, eternal damnation, torment, with a fire never dies out. The thirst is never quenched. Jesus made it very clear. Everlasting life is a wonderful thing. It's only available to those who would receive it by faith. Everlasting damnation is a different story. You've got the choice to go on one road or the other. Now I know that you all, I believe, know these truths. I know I'm speaking probably to the choir, but we need to understand these things. We need to know where to go in His Word. Part of what I have been saying, there's much, much more that can be said. It's in the Word of God, and we can use God's Word to proclaim these same truths to a lost and dying world. We need to be filled with His Holy Spirit, friends, in these last days to go forth from this place at this hour. There is trouble ahead, but there is nothing to be afraid of. Be prepared. Don't be scared, for He is coming for His church. And He's waiting for the fullness of Gentiles to be fulfilled, to be come in. And when that time comes, then the Father will send the Son for His bride. Be there with us and be received into glory in Jesus' name.